One of the really good ingredients of chicken soup is chicken. <laughs> and so if we're going to make chicken soup, we've got to take one of these and put it in there. And that's, that's how you begin chicken soup. Now, I know some of you are saying, did Jim just pick up raw chicken? I'm not shaking his hand at the end of the day. <laughs> and, of course, with chicken, you're going to need things like um, salt and pepper. You might want to make chicken noodle soup. You might want um, onions. You might want some celery. Oh, and you got maybe you want chicken potato soup. Maybe you'll put in some cream and, and some other things. But, um, and then, of course, you're going to use spices like sage and what else do I have here? Uh, parsley and some thyme, and you just sort of dump that in. And you put it and you bake it or you, you boil it, and eventually out comes chick- chicken soup. Now, what I'm getting at is supposing that you... Um, you're serving chicken soup and somebody comes up to you and that person says, look, I'm, I'm ornithologically intolerant. Could you please take my chicken out of my chicken soup? Because if I eat chicken, I start to break out and I get nervous and all these things and I start to, you know, choke up. And, and, and the answer is, well, yes, I can, but it's not chicken soup. Just call it soup. And that's what we're dealing with as we begin to look at what are the worldviews that are out there that have decided that we can, uh, you might say, take the chicken out of chicken soup. And let's see what we have left. How do other people, especially the secular world around us, as it delves into secular materialism, in other words, science is God, as it delves, in, as it delves into pantheism, uh, we're saying that there's not a personal God, but instead there's, there's spiritual forces out there, supernatural forces, but no God that we can know. Or how do they compare to the Judeo-Christian worldview, which has been around since the days of Moses and before him, actually? How, how do they do that? And today, as we get into secular humanism, what happens when they take the chicken of God's creation, God himself, and they decide, you know, we're God-challenged. Whenever we hear the word God or Jesus Christ, we start to break out and we get nervous and we start to twitch. Therefore, wouldn't it be a better world if we kept all the values, all the teachings, everything else, but just took the chicken out? And there you have in terms of human society and what governs uh, human behavior, you have what's called secular humanism. Now, it was best described in one phrase, but like this. Man is actually God. They're probably saying there is no God, but if there is, man is the ultimate authority. It's been around for about 200 years, and probably nothing was done better than in 1849, uh, William E. Henley wrote a poem called Invictus. And in that poem, he describes uh, how he is getting through his miserable life. And he's approaching death. He has had a leg amputated because of a a cancer in it. And and so he writes this poem, Invictus, which means inconquerable. Let me read it to you. And I'm going to try to do it with a defiance that I see in his spirit as I read it. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance. My head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this piece of, uh, this piece of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, death. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments and scroll, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Great poem. But did you notice what he did? He says, if there are gods out there, they must be crazy. If there's gods out there, or there is a god, and he does not admit that there is, he's saying it just does not make sense. Why would I suffer as I am suffering? So understand that what we are looking at is a belief system. We, we call it a, 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 um, a worldview, but it's really a belief system. If I'm to give you the core values and the definition of secular humanism, it's saying that we're alone on this planet. Let me just read the definition. should be in, the, uh, in your outline in your program. The belief, it's a belief, not proven, that human beings are alone in the world and must act responsibly by forming their ethics solely from their human experience, human reason, and logic. So the poem of Invictus describes answering to ourselves. But real humanism means that the whole species has to be, find itself working together, or in the words of the famous philosopher uh, Paul McCartney, we can work it out. Try to see it my way. We can work it out. By coming together, our superior intelligence and our common lifestyle for all peoples. And, and to work it out so that we can enjoy harmony and understanding in the age of Aquarius, we must agree to the following core values. And in each of these core values, the chicken is taken out of the pot of chicken soup. So the first is this, that man makes himself and his world. Man is all we've got. He's the top of, of the totem pole. It's up to him. If man is to be uh, survive and if he's to make progress, then man will do it. It's up to humanity alone. Secondly, radical individual freedom. That means, as it was described, no church is going to be telling me what to do. There's no doctrine. It's up to me. And so we are free to think for ourselves and do not have others telling us what to do, what to think. The magazine of the humanist movement worldview is called Free Thinker. And what they're saying is, you are free to think, and you are free to think, and you are free to think anything you want, as long, they don't say this, as long as it doesn't agree with me because I have superior intelligence and I am much more influential than you are. You see, uh, a world made up of 7 billion in human individuals who are free thinkers is not going to work. And so others come around and they say, look, I'm smarter and more nobler than you. Uh, I'm, I'm not more nobler. I'm noble. <laughs> nobler. <laughs> than you and all the others around me. The third uh, core value is moral truth comes from human dialogue. There are no absolutes out there. But we, de we depend upon democratic consensus. And so when it comes to moral ethics, there's no absolutes. All truth is relative. People in the situations, they will come up with what's good for them at that time, and then later they may change it. This means that in some places, 
Some people would say violence is good. Murder is okay. Cannibalism, only if you're hungry, okay? Other cultures might say polygamy is the best way to get around in life. While others say, you know, no, it's got to be monogamy. No set or one set of rules uh, works all the time, but together we can work it out. Fourth, sin. Oh, I don't like that word. Besides, it's all relative. It's an outdated term for a time before secular humanism evolved into the highest form of secular uh, of human existence. Adultery may be good. Murder might have a good reason to it. Using your power to put others under you, even slavery, if you you know you can so reason, it becomes an acceptable form of human existence. So now we get on to if there's no sin, then of course the one who says there's sin and, and good behavior. Uh, what about God? What about Jesus? God and Jesus? Well, God, they say, is irrelevant. We don't think he exists. We cannot prove one way or the other. But, you know, that doesn't matter. It's humanity that counts. But Jesus was a human. He did exist. And he is one of the greatest teachers and moral examples of human history. But that is all he was. He is not God. He did no miracles. He died. He is buried somewhere. And it's our memories only of him that we claim uh, that we claim to be the example to which we will follow. Now, if you're looking to where such thinking can be best observed, uh, you need to understand that there, this is a worldview that says there is no supernatural being, and therefore we are the ones who test ourselves. And we are going to develop and evolve into a higher form of being And maybe Jesus will be part of that because he was a great example to us. Well, C.S. Lewis spoke 75 years ago about uh, secular humanistic thinking. Again, it's been around, as we say, for 200 years. I think it's been around since humanity uh, came about. But when he was speaking of that, you know, what do you do with Jesus? That's, That's the term that really puts secular people on the spot. What do you do with him? And uh, he was surrounded in his university life as an author and, and uh, uh, teacher of humanities. Um, and, and he taught the classics. Uh, he was surrounded in his university by professors and, and uh, university students who were secular humanists in the 1940s and 50s. And in his book uh, uh, called Mere Christianity, he takes this view. Jesus is a great example, but nothing else. And here's what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that, uh, saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, what they say is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing, C.S. Lewis says, that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else be, or else uh, would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was, is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us that option. He did not intend to. You see, the easiest thing is to pull Jesus as the chicken out of the pot and to say he's irrelevant except for some of the words he said, uh, some of the teachings that he had. But if you look at what he said, and that's the danger, I look at it every day. If you look at what he said, as C.S. Lewis commented, it's not an option he left us. Well, where did this idea, you know, how, how did we find ourselves being in a milieu of, of secular uh, humanism? You might say, well, if it began in the 1850s and has continued for about 200 years. But really, as I look at Scripture, and we're going into Genesis 1 to 11 in this whole series, as I look at Scripture, I realize from the very beginning, as mankind, as the human race is described, you see some of the same trends that we're seeing today. Basically, we do not like to be controlled by God. It's okay to be controlled by other people, but we say not by God. So God describes humanity as his special and free creation. Because in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, meaning we have a, a commonness in some things with God, and let them rule. So <clears throat> most of the great thoughts of secular humanism actually emerged out of human humanity is someone special. We are special. But taking the chicken out of the pot, we believe that what we have left is enough. So it's a world where humans can come together and find consensus. If you're looking at two important words for secular humanism, the first is equality and the second is consensus. Equality, which we agree with, all men are created equal by God. We agree with that. Consensus, the best way to, to form a society is to be democratic. We agree with that. God? No, we don't agree. And we don't agree with the place that he has in a human's life. So we are gifted with free will. We're gifted with some of God's great brilliance and intelligence to be able to, to rule the world and to make use of it. Uh, we're also gifted with a faulty reasoning. In other words, with our free will, we are fallen. We are not perfect beings. Our minds, our hearts, our actions, our, our intentions, they're very self-centered. And so the reason why you might find that there's a lack of unity in our world today is that they refuse to believe that mankind is basically self-centered, self-seeking. And if he's self-seeking, then how can you find commonality with another person unless you agree with his self-seeking. You have to be thinking like he does or like she does. So this, this, this idea is more than 200 years old. Secular humanism is actually a, an ancient worldview that rears its ugly head with each new generation. We want to live without God uh, and without being accountable to God. Genesis society but one without God. I start in Genesis chapter 11. Now, I want to say this as I, as I go here. Um, I believe in the truth, historical truth of Genesis 1 to 11. 
But I'm also aware of many Christians who say this is yet to be proven. Uh, and, and so, you know, uh, understand that uh, I can sit down and talk with these people and have a great time with these people. But even if you disagree, understand that Genesis 11 has a point that is true and it is godly truth. So don't tune me out if you're saying, I'm not sure I can agree with the historicity of Genesis 11. Here's the point. I read, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see what's going on there? First of all, they make no mention of God. And they use this phrase, let us now do this. Does the word let us sound familiar? I mean, the, the phrase? Why? Because just before in Genesis one twenty six, God says to the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. And so when you see the phrase, let us, what is it telling us? That they have taken the chicken out of the pot and say, we're the pot, we're the soup. And therefore, they're saying, let us build a city. Leave God out. Let us build a temple that will go to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Aren't those great phrases? And aren't they still historically secular and humanistic? No God is involved. So uh, when you see that, let us understand that what God is saying, no, wait a minute, you are still subjects. I, I made you, I gave you free will, but I'm also the one who's working in the world. And believe me, what you were saying will only bring about disaster. So they may be ignorant and they may be unwilling, but they are unable to stop God from confusing them. So God comes down and this is what he says. The, the Lord said in, in verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So he confuses them with multiple languages. Therefore, there is no equality with multiple languages. They cannot communicate. They cannot find con uh, consensus. And they can't build a thing. <laughs> and may I say, that is humanity as we know him. That is what we humans are like. Now, if, even if you can't you know, say, I I'm not sure about the historicity, understand I do, and I'd love to talk to you about it. But the teaching point is obvious. People want to make a name for themselves. And if they can do this, maybe they can do anything. We have a creator who knows us, who entrusts us with purpose in our life, and who works to bring people to him. So the idea here is that if people say we can work together, we do not need God to, to progress. And so... The, the, the confusion of the language, languages ended up with a dispersed humanity to other parts and, and they are all around the world with a, a fractured subsets. 
They cannot unify. Now, it's not because they have different languages. It's because humanity is flawed. And humanity, each of us, is self-centered. So whether it was the League of Nations after World War I, the United Nations after World War II, the 12 tribes of Israel in the days of Joshua, or at home, your little sister, whether it's one-on-one or trying to unify the whole world, we are flawed, we are fallen, we are self-centered. We figure the best world is to make everyone revolve around us instead of us revolve around God. Secular humanism denies that God knows us, that he gives us a purpose, and and more than that, that he's working to bring people first to himself so that they can be unified around him. So, you know, what does the Bible then say about this? Well, when we're talking about how God unifies the world versus the key words of secular humanism, God sort of summarizes uh, for us in just two little sentences what it means to have the Judeo-Christian worldview. He, he says it first in Deuteronomy, and it's repeated in many places. And he says it through Jesus, though it's also mentioned in other places besides Jesus. You see, where we differ most with secular humanism is the belief that God is the most necessary ingredient to our human existence. They try a human existence without a God. And they're struggling with oneness everywhere and with everyone. Our God has designed us to have a relationship with him. And he has been relentless in pursuing us to become one with him. And once we become one with him, we become one with others. So Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, you know, how are we supposed to live? He puts the chicken back in the pot and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this is to be the people of Israel who do that together. Then Jesus said after that, and there's a second commandment, and it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not equality, it's not consensus, it's love. There's the difference. It's not equality, it's not consensus, it's love. And when you say love my neighbor as myself, it means I'm not necessarily trying to get my neighbor to agree with everything I do. I'm throwing myself at my neighbor to discuss what he or she needs. And out of love for God and love for my neighbor that God gave me, therefore, this is how we begin to work together. Now, if it's just a one-way thing with you and your neighbor, you will get tired. Your neighbor may take advantage of you because he or she is a secular humanist. That may be true. Or he or she has fallen anyway, so they might take advantage of you even if they're believers. But he does not tell us to come together to get consensus with each other. He tells all humanity to come to our creator and to listen to him. So what does the best humanity look like? Humanity at its best over the millennium, when we've tried to uh, attempt uh, various versions of human society, we've tried, uh, uh, you know, to make progress as a race and to become more noble. And one of the experiments we've had is different types of government. We've also tried to better our health, both mental and physical health, so we may live longer. We've experimented with different styles of family life. 
And we have used the world and its resources, as we were commanded, to create a more comfortable life for us. We have solved our problems with experts and reading self-help techniques. We've tried all these for a season, but as I talk to you, most of you would say, yeah, I did that. Two weeks, four days. It was just hard. More than that, it wasn't just hard. Nothing happened. Uh, I was disappointed. The promises that were made did not come true. So, when it is complete, you see, we are left with our imperfect lives and we're surrounded by people who share our imperfections. And to claim that humankind has progressed in more than just a few economic ways, to be honest with you, would be a lie. Each human is at his or her best when having a love relationship with our Creator and a love relationship with the people around us. And that relationship with the Creator, a one-to-one relationship, propels each of us to have a better relationship with other humans. That is when we're at our best, when our relationships are right as designed by a Creator. So I understand this, that as I'm speaking to people that, you know, even on my block that have a, a more secular worldview, who, who say, well, I believe in a God, but can't really point to the effect that that God is having in their lives. When, when they're talking about uh, certain movements in our country, uh, certain uh, emphases of our government or our education system or, or you know, whatever we revolve our, our, our organizations around, um, I, it, it's because they believe in these principles, these core values, it, you don't want, I don't want to go in and pick at them, but I, I have two questions, and I've used them both on my neighbors. Uh, the first is, what is the most successful expression of humanism throughout the history of mankind? What's the most successful one? Tower of Babel didn't work. That was the first, or among the first. And I've had them point to, well, uh, uh, we, we believe that man should be you know, ruling himself just by himself, take away God and all the restrictions of religion and, and just leave man with individual uh, freedom and the best will come out. So when I'm talking about the deeper things and I say, what is the most successful expression of humanism in history? Uh, the most common answer I get is, well, socialism. That's, that's by far the best. Where we believe that, you know, there should be uh, equal lifestyles, that all people are equal. And so uh, organizing around a central government that is dedicated to making people more equal. I, I don't know, but every experiment with socialism has had this happen. Everyone. Some people say, well, yes, I am dedicated to that, so much so that I'm going to take a leadership form. I'm going to take a role of leadership, and we are all equal. It's just that I'm more equal than you. Because in every attempt at socialism, what has happened is those who are ruling are the ones who get the special vacations, who get the special privileges. And, and they say, well, I've worked hard for that. And, I, you know, that's capitalism. 
So you know, the, the main thing they look at is certain governments and, and their styles. But it doesn't work out that people live more equally. I heard this great phrase in Russia when I went there in uh, 1992. Uh, the, the, the Berlin Wall had fallen and the whole uh, Soviet empire was crumbling. And we went to Russia with 14 other pastors. And, and as we were there, we talked a lot to students who were trying to figure out you know, what, what the new Russia would look like. And, and as we were talking to them, uh, I, I said, well, what do you remember about five years ago? Oh, they said it's funny because we used to summarize Soviet socialism. We summarized it this way. For 70 years, the government pretended to pay us. While the government lived very well. All the people in the government lived very well. And I said, oh, that's terrible. I said, no, it's not so bad. In their Russian accent, which I can't do. Because for 70 years, we pretended to work. Do you want to know what really rules in terms of a secular world? It's the idea that if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Reciprocity. In the Latin world, in, in, uh, in, in Rome, it was called liberatitis. But it really meant reciprocity. And so as you develop relationships, what bonds you is, you know, this person owes me something or I owe this person something. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, it's love. And it's not how much the other person loves you. It's how much you love the other person. It's different, far more difficult. But it works. Second question I often ask, oh, oh, the other, the other experiment, because I lived through this, the 60s and 70s, uh, where, where we form these uh, communal lifestyles, you know, and we escape from, from all the stresses of the business world and corporateness, and, and also many were hiding from the draft board. Um, and so they escape from society to live the free and simple life. But what they forgot in living the free and simple life is someone still had to do the dishes and someone still had to clean the latrines, and the leader never did either. So most people lasted in this lifestyle just a few months before they realized it was unreasonable and they were starving. So then I ask, what is the most successful expression of humanism existing today? Where can I go to find the closest thing to this utopia that has been promised? And everyone says, have you tried Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway? These countries have insulated themselves in ways to make their claims useless. They have almost no immigration. And when they do have immigration, they are very strict about who gets in. They have no defense budget. And Denmark, as an example, is the size of Massachusetts with one-third of the population and not the social problems we have. And the entire culture, as their own sociologists are saying, is beginning to crumble because they're losing the families. So the answer is there has been no great um, expression today of secular humanism that works. Well, one, maybe one. A few uh, months ago, uh, Tim Riley sent me a video of... Uh, uh, just explaining uh, sort of how we can see man progressing and, and maybe you might even say evolving to something deeper and greater than we could ever imagine. I, I remember 
hearing that phrase, you know, if God intended man to fly, then he would have given us wings. And therefore, man has never flown and whatever. And then we invented the airplane and we started flying there and the spaceship, we started flying there. But now we've developed a suit with wings that we can get in. And uh, this is sort of the attempt to show how we can overcome anything if we just get together, have consensus, and begin to work things out. Can we turn off the lights here? And I want to show you this video. Make sure you don't blink because at the end, the punchline is there. Did we have sound? Don't think so? Okay. It's a news review of these guys who have the flying suits and they're flying through Rio de Janeiro. And you can see it's uh, ABC News, Channel 7. And <clears throat> then it shows what these guys are doing. And watch where they go through this very narrow opening. And these are Red Bull-sponsored suits. Isn't that amazing? We can do anything. And here he is coming over near Christ the Redeemer. I was laughing for four days. Let's pray. Lord. One of the parts of relating to you is you humble our human spirit. And you prove to us, like Dirty Harry, a man's got to know his limitations. We realize that without you, as we sang today, we're nothing. Yes, we are gifted and as humans, we're the, the top of your creation. But Lord, we were made to have a relationship with you. I wish we could learn in less painful ways. But our internal human pride keeps us from seeing how desperate we are to know our Creator. We thank you that when we wanted and had all these questions about you and wanted to know you more, you sealed the deal with Jesus, God with his skin on, who would not only point us to you, but also let us know of your forgiveness through his death on the cross. Lord, we cling to Jesus. He, you, your spirit, they're the chicken in the pot. And without you, we must redefine life in our own terms. Live with the frustration that humanity doesn't get along well unless every individual is commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves and love our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Thank you in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.